Action Party Kaylee, Celtic music from across the globe and across town. I'm your host, Dave Baghdad, and I'm so glad you could be here. On tonight's show, we continue our preview of the Celtic Colors Festival and focus on the music of J.P. Cormier. Thanks for being here. This program was made possible by support from the Clotta Irish Pub in Plainfield. So glad you could join us for this week's Kitchen Party Kaylee. I'm your host, Dave Baghdad, and we have a great show for you. Some things you may know and a lot you probably don't. Before we get underway, let me thank our sponsor, the Clotta Irish Pub in Plainfield, 2539 Futura Parkway, offering a pub-friendly atmosphere with fine food, open seven days a week, and a great place to celebrate your next special life event. I want to congratulate our friends at Indie Irish Fest for another wonderful festival and to thank them for their support of our show. What a fine time out there, meeting listeners as well as acts you've heard on this program, like the Hounds of Finn, Ennis, and the Elders. Looking forward to next year already. It's hard to believe, but this is our 10th show, and we're going to do something really special. This is the second installment of our four-part preview of the Celtic Colors International Festival in Cape Breton. We're going to do something we've never done before, which is to focus our whole show on a single artist. J.P. Cormier has deep roots in Cape Breton, but this is only part of the story. He sought out and soaked up music ranging from maritime old-time fiddling, to American bluegrass and country, to Canadian singer-songwriters like Gordon Lightfoot, to whom J.P. recorded an entire album in tribute. He's a big bear of a man, and when you see him for the first time, you might think he looks gruff or unapproachable, but he's actually quite engaging, and he's prone to acts of amazing generosity, both musically and personally. He's one of those musicians who, when you see him perform, as I have almost 20 times, you get the sense that he's capable of translating any idea from his head to his fingers. We're going to hear a lot from JP tonight, in music and in words, but let's start with a couple of great tracks. First, we'll hear a pair of jigs, the chorus jig and the cue, from an album called Primary Color that focuses on JP's guitar playing. Then we'll have a song, The Stranger, from his 2007 album, The Messenger. Here's JP Cormier with the Cape Breton guitar set on the Kitchen Party Kaylee. Thank you. 
on yonder mountain for to find those that I'm my own. Yet I stand here, stand here before you like a stranger far from home. But my father, he was a miner. Now his comrades, they dig his bones. And he left me, when he left me, like a stranger far from home. And famous courted their daughters by candlelight. But there ne'er was one who could snare me. The train I left on was dead of night. There are those who sought to chain me to the pillars of their greed. But the gift God laid inside me finally brought them to their knees. Broken highway, seen the foibles of weaker men. Yet I stand here, stand here defiant, on the road back home again. When I watch my final sunset, I will know that I've been true. And the sacred roaring fire in my soul, I leave to you. Endless story of the men who once were me. You may laugh and turn to hide it, but at least I still am free. I have come o'er yonder mountain for to find those that are my own. Yet I stand here, stand here before you like a stranger far from home. Yet I stand here. Stand here before you like a stranger far from home. The Stranger from J.P. Cormier's 2007 album, The Messenger. Before that, we heard the Cape Breton guitar set, consisting of two jigs, the chorus and the cue, from J.P.'s guitar album, Primary Color. I could tell you a whole lot about J.P., his life and times, but I'd rather have him do it. Here's part one of my recent chat with J.P. Cormier on The Kitchen Party Kaylee. A little bit of early history. You were born in London, Ontario. When does Cape Breton first enter the picture for you? Long before that, my mother and father are from there, and all my siblings were born there. I was a work baby. My father went up to Ontario to work as a master carpenter, and he got an incredible job opportunity up there in 1964, I think it was. In 69, I was born, he was 50, and my mother was 47. So uh, I was a bit of a surprise to everyone. (laughs) 
Only for the first time, I'm sure. <laughs> when were you able to settle in Cape Breton with your family? We never got to do that. My father passed away when I was eight up there in Ontario. It obviously put us into a tailspin in every way, financially. And by this time, everybody was living up there. Me and my mother and my brothers were all there. And in 1981, we all decided that Ontario wasn't where we wanted to be, and they all wanted to come home. So all of us moved back to Nova Scotia in 1981. Supposedly to go to work with my half brother had a job at the time in the Michelin plant in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. And he said he told all the boys, You come down here, I'll get you jobs. And we all ended up going there. When we got there, there was a massive layoff and no jobs. And my mother and I ended up on social assistance for years. And I grew up pretty hard. No money, no nothing. It was a pretty desperate situation. By the time you moved back to Nova Scotia, you had already been playing guitar for a substantial number of years at that point. Well, I started playing records on the turntable at about three, and when I was five, I began stealing my older brother's guitar, playing it that nobody knew. And when I was about six, I got brave one day and walked out of the living room and played the guitar for my mother and father. I guess the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you start with the fiddle? Uh, about 13. My father was a tremendous violin player. He's, of course, the brother to Joe Cormier, who's very famous in the U.S., lives in Boston for the last 50 years. And my father taught him. My father was his older brother. And dad was an incredible violin player. And of course, as I said, we weren't in very good shape when he passed on. His violin was sold, and I was never able to recover it. I've looked for it for almost 35 years. I've never been able to find it. It was sold to a classical violinist in Kitchener, Ontario. Nobody knows or remembers who the man was, his name, or any of those things. So I grew up without a violin in the house. I just had the LPs. Everybody knew how much I loved the fiddle. And a neighbor of ours came to the house one day with a violin and gave it to me. And uh, I was about 13 at the time. And, of course, I ate it. I started playing the fiddle, and I never stopped. Who were your early influences besides the memories of your father and your uncle? The first music I ever heard ever in my life that I remember recognizing as music was Winston Fitzgerald. That was the first music I ever heard, and to me, that was just the pinnacle of music. I listened to Winston, and I emulated Espen Davison, who was Winston's guitar player, who was one of the most brilliant technicians of his time. This is the man who backed up the most complicated fiddle music that was written. Without a capo, without reading music, without any of those things, uh, he and Beatty Wallace on the piano were, at the time, and probably still to this day in some ways, the best at what they did, ever. And it made instant sound, you know? All three of them were characters as well. That made it even more full of life. I never met Winston. I had an opportunity to, and I didn't. But I knew Eswood quite well. And they were just fun. They loved to tell stories. They, they did things that other people just don't do. Never get an opportunity to, you know? I was very isolated as a musician. I had no teacher. My brother Joe started me off on the first few chords. But I mean, I surpassed it so quickly that he gave up playing, actually. Still plays sing now, but at the time, he just sort of gave up on it and sort of let me have it. And I was playing at an adult level at the age of six, right? So from there, I learned everything on my own, the turntable, wearing the needles out, putting the needles back, 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 and repeating phrases, phrases, tearing the needle out of the machine every two weeks. And I never even really played with other conditions until I was about 14. I, I never was around anyone. I was already playing for nearly 10 years and had already drifted off into not only Winston, but I was very interested in old-time fiddle. I'm a big Don Messer fan, Graham Townsend, John DeRoche, Jerry Robichaux, Carl Elliott, the Elliott brothers. Those people just blew my mind. The old-time fiddlers really turned my crank. There was a different kind of music. 
and it was way different than Cape Breton. The whole other technique, whole other, just everything was completely different. It was a very lively music and it had a lot of waltzes in it, not very many jigs, no strass made marches, but the reels were, to me, there was something in there that just set me on fire. And though I was already into old-time fiddle music, and of course, Chet Atkins, Jerry Reed, Django Reinhardt, Doc Watson, my first encounter with the outside world with other musicians came through a, a television show audition I went to at Bridgewater for a show they called Up Home Tonight. And producer, George Stobie, was also the leader of the house band on the show. I walked in there with a tape recorder with my rhythm track on it. Because I had no perception that there would be anybody even there that could play rhythm guitar for me. Whereas, you know, there was several people in that band who were all masters of bluegrass music. And I walked in there with my little tape recorder, my rhythm track on, and I played two big medleys of Doc Watson to and, and just packed up and walked out. I was incredibly shy. I had a terrible, terrible time when I was young talking to people and looking at anybody and just, I was incredibly withdrawn. So that was my first foray. When I met those people, I, was, I met all these other people who could pick their verses off. And I was like, wow, this is cool. There's other people like me that love this music, right? So that was pretty well the start of everything. That show, and being on TV, getting that exposure, I started being taken around to the festivals in the province, Bluegrass Festival. And that's how it began. And shortly thereafter, at the end of my 15th year, I made my first record with Ray Legere and Frank Duty, two of Atlantic Canada's most incredible instrumentalists. And a friend of mine, Murray Freeman, decided to take me on tour to the United States with the album. We made a huge circuit of festivals between here and Florida, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Kansas, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. It was a massive 30 or 40 day trip. That was in September. The following January, I moved to the United States. I just turned 16. And I got a job down there with the Sullivan family, a bluegrass gospel band out of St. Stephen's, Alabama, about 50 miles north of Mobile. And I moved down there with my instruments and clothing. I actually sort of hitchhiked down, and I stayed down there for 10 years, off and on. I was getting out of Canada periodically. I was laughing the other day, I was telling somebody else I missed about three prime ministers. Like, it was really weird, I was laughing about it, because I was thinking, geez, I missed a whole decade of Canadian politics. I stayed there for 10 years, and I met the woman that I married in 94, Hilda Chasson, who's a pillar of the Cape Breton music scene. And I had contracts left in the United States to work out with, I was playing with Waylon Jennings and, and Jerry and Tammy Sullivan and Marty Stewart and a bunch of other people I was working with. And those contracts sort of came to an end and there, we weren't sure what the future was down there. And, and Hilda talked me into coming home to Cape Breton to live in Shipping Camp where my people were from and sing the songs I was writing because nobody knew I was writing anything. And that's why I'm talking to you right now. That was part one of my conversation with J.P. Cormier. After he returned from the States to settle in Cape Breton in the mid-90s, he released a bunch of albums, and we're going to hear a couple of selections from these. First up is a record called Heart and Soul, which mostly emphasizes his fiddle playing. From that, we're going to hear Alan's set, which combines Cape Breton-style fiddling with an almost Latin beat, and there's some wonderful guitar playing. Then we'll go to J.P.'s breakthrough album, Another Morning, for one of his best-known songs, Molly May. Here's more from J.P. Cormier and the Kitchen Party Kaylee.
Just a lad I was of thirteen years when my father passed away. And I had to take a job as deckhand on the Molly May. And the time I spent one summer past turned into fifty years. And the sound she made as she broke the waves still rings within my ears. She was passed to me when I was twenty-three. Captain Mills went round the bend. He saw a forerunner on the dock one night. Never sailed again. Superstition be damned. I sailed her proud, fair maiden of the sea. There was never another like her, and no one for her but me. I saw the time with me in my prime. No man could be my equal. Through the eye of a needle, I'd sail any day. When I grew older, I couldn't hold her. My courage slipped away. So they put a young boy from cancer at the wheel of the morning. The years went by and the tales ran high of the catches we brought in. There were times I thought we'd sink her, but her spirit would not give in. Words are spoken and souls are broken, and the bottle shattered mine. I could see that she'd outlive me, but not win the war of time. But I saw the days. Mid devil waves, no man could be my equal. Through the eye of a needle, I'd sail any day. When I grew older, I couldn't hold her. My courage slipped away. So they put a young boy from cancer at the wheel of the Molly May. I was there to see her sail away in the cold December haze, but the Kansas boy had never seen the lights of the southeast wind and waves. At the harbor mouth, he drifted south right into Lighthouse Rock, and he smashed her keel and laid her low while I watched there from the dock. But I saw the time. In my prime, no man could be my equal. Through the eye of a needle, I'd sail any day. But when I grew older, I couldn't hold her. My courage slipped away. So they put a young boy from cancer at the wheel of the morning, and there'll never be another. Likes of a Molly May, and I wish that I had gone down, boys, at the wheel of a Molly May.
That was Molly May from what's probably J.P. Cormier's most successful album, Another Morning. I've always been partial to that song because it mentions the town of Canso, Nova Scotia, a place I've been many times, which is home to the annual Stan Rogers Folk Festival, better known as Stanfest. J.P. has played Stanfest probably every year, and we'll hear more about that later. That song was preceded by Alan's set, a selection from J.P.'s fiddle album, Heart and Soul. The last several years of J.P.'s life have been personally and professionally transforming, as he will be the first to tell you. All of that has resulted in his most recently released album, Somewhere in the Back of My Heart, which came out last year. Let's listen in as J.P. discusses the events of the last few years and their effect on his life and music. You made the classic albums that established your reputation, and that's all now culminated, so far anyway, in your most recent album, Somewhere in the Back of My Heart. You really went through quite a significant personal process in bringing that record about. Yeah, everybody sort of has a midlife crisis, I guess, but mine was brought about by physical circumstances rather than emotional or mental. In the liner notes, I talked about the car wreck I had in 2009, first auto accident I ever had, actually, in my life, which is a shock. That's amazing, considering all the running up and down that you've done doing 200, 250 dates a year. I tried to figure out one time with a mathematical formula that would tell me how many miles I've actually been behind the wheel, and I stopped into the millions. <laughs> I was like three or four million miles, and I just gave up. Because it is, it's ridiculous how many hours I've spent in the last 31 years behind the wheel of a vehicle. I'm behind one right now, just parked. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, the wreck shattered me physically, for one thing. I broke my back. That kind of injury for a musician is pretty well doomed. Like, if you recover from it so you can walk again, you never recover from the pain of it. And standing up in front of a microphone, holding an instrument up, and all these other things. I knew lots of people in the industry by anecdote and personally who had severe back injuries, and their lives weren't very much fun. It was either be stoned on painkillers or go through mortal agony at every show. And I indeed was sort of at that point. It took 17 weeks for me to be able to walk again with any success. I spent 17 weeks, basically, in a recliner that wasn't fully reclined. It was like half reclined. That was the only position that I could find where I could stand the pain. And they gave me, of course, every kind of insane narcotic you could imagine. I would take for the simple reason I know how easy it is to get addicted to those things. And I've watched my friends lose their entire lives from taking Oxy and Demerol and all the things that leads to, right? So I decided there would be no chemical pain management. It would have to be physical and mental. And the hard part about the situation was that <laughs> I had gigs that were going on like all through this, and it was hiding. We couldn't tell anybody what happened to me because this business is really strange. Like, if it gets around that you have that type of injury, there's two things that happen. One is they just don't call you at all because they think you're not able to do the gig. Or they don't call you because they don't want to put you through the pain of doing the gig. So I decided that no one would ever know what happened to me. And it was touch and go for a while. We, we did hide it. There's still people today that have no idea what happened. They just saw me with the cane and didn't know. I made a good show of walking with it like I didn't need it. And it was a really nice cane. <laughs> I bought a cane that had the sterling silver handle with a wolf's head on it. So it sort of matched my blink preference. So everybody thought, okay, yeah, yeah he's just blinking out with a cane, right? But really, it was holding me up. <laughs> We hit it for a long while. Well, we hit it successfully the whole time, I guess, because nobody knew. The very first year I did after the accident, which occurred after about a week, <laughs> I was snuck into the hall on crutches 
I only let my close friends know what was going on. And they literally put me in a wooden chair and I wore all black clothing. And they taped me to the back of the chair with black tape. You couldn't see it against my clothes. And they lifted me out of the back of the stage and pushed me up to the curtains. And I played a square dance. And nobody really noticed that I was taped into the chair because I couldn't hold myself up. I would just fall forward in a seated position. So that was the first gig. And then things got easier after that. You used the occasion to sort of do an extensive re-examination of your life to that point, and you've made some decisions as a result of that process that have affected your career. Yeah, they have. You just never know what's going to happen in your life. And at the time, I just turned 40, and I was just like, I'm not doing what I want to do pretty well in any way, in any corner of my life. I'm not happy. And if I could die that easily... Just driving home from a gig, like, what is the point of ever doing anything that doesn't make me happy? And I walked out of my whole life. I walked out of my marriage, and I walked out of my home, and I walked out of my career. I just walked. And I was spying for the first couple of years. Me and the Elliott brothers toured, but my heart wasn't it. And it was still really hard to tour. The accident happened in August of 09, and I was probably well into mid-2011 before I had a pain-free day. And it was just very difficult to travel and to keep a smile on my face. The boys helped me. We always had a lot of fun on stage. That helped. But I also didn't like the fact I was seated on stage for about a year. I didn't like that. It just didn't look right. It didn't feel good. But later on, I began to stand up again and play as everything started to heal, you know. By the spring of 2012, right before I made that record, I decided that it just wasn't working for me anymore. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I was scared that there was something inside me that was pointing out to me all the great players I've seen in my life who played up into their 70s, or more specifically, played beyond the point where they could play well. And they spent maybe five or ten years doing that before they passed on, and that's what people remember. And I don't want to be that. So I thought, well, I'll just quit, and I'll teach other people to do this. I'll record and produce other people. I won't burn myself out at the age of you know, 43. I can still play really well the next 25 years if I don't burn myself out. And I announced my retirement. In 2012, I barely played at all. I just had the dates I'd already booked. But a whole bunch of things happened. We made that record. Basically, Emily Dingwall, who we hired to sing the harmony on the song called Noise, and a couple others on that album, who is a tremendous bass player and guitar player and songwriter and singer. She's just a great talent. She's a young girl. She's 25 years old when she was on that record with me. And we just got it in our heads that it was time to maybe not retire. But we had to do something different. And the key was a close friend of mine, Phil Dubinsky, who used to manage the Bear McNeils that I've been working with for years. He looked at me and said, you know, what you need to do is go back to the beginning and do what you always did, which was going on stage by yourself and do everything you can do. And take one person with you, a bass player that can sing and will augment what you do. And the first person we thought of was Emily. And she said yes as soon as we asked her. And that was uh, over a year ago. The first time she played live with me was at Stan Fest in 2011. And it was a long hiatus. And we finally hit the road across the country February of last year. We've been on the road since last July. We've been touring. And then all of this year, we, we toured and we're, and we're still touring. And we're touring ahead into 2014. And the shows are magic because I just don't care anymore. <laughs> I just don't care anymore about any of the crap about the industry. I'm only there to 
It's interesting that you mentioned you start everything with just you and an instrument by yourself. And on the album, somewhere in the back of my heart, there's a few things on there where yeah. it's just you and a guitar on something that you wrote. And I just don't remember another album of yours being that stark and that, uh, I almost want to say, revealing in places. Yeah, well, another very important thing about that recording is that every vocal on that album, every song was cut the same way. Me in a room by myself with three mics and a guitar and a vocal, and the guitar and vocals were cut simultaneously live off the floor. Really? I've never done that. I've always done the modern way of cutting a bed, putting the instruments on, and singing the lead vocal last as an overdub. We did it exactly the opposite. We did me and my guitar alone simultaneously, just me playing and singing, and then built everything on top of that. I agree with what you just said. It is revealing. There's nowhere to hide when you're doing that. You either have to be able to pull it off or you don't. It's just that simple. You can't use pitch correction. You can't use any kind of tricks. The guitar and the voice are both happening at the same time. If they don't match, well, it just doesn't match, right? Whether it's by design or whether it's worked out that way throughout your career, you've had a song album, and then you've had an instrumental album, and so on. And on some of the song albums, there's a little bit of overspill, because there's certainly going to be some moments of some really hot playing. But on this most recent album, the focus is so overwhelmingly on the songs. Yeah, well, I wanted to do it that way. I think the last three years of my life liberated me from a lot of things, from fear and self-criticism. Because I'm very, very self-critical. I always have been a perfectionist, especially with myself. And I've, I'm sure that all artists are like that. They compare themselves to their heroes, their peers, and they stress about it and worry about it. Am I doing something that's as good as he is or I've done in the past? The last three years has erased that for me. I just don't have it anymore. I get the most incredible joy and freedom now from just picking up a guitar. And the interaction I have with my friends who are artists, it's so much more rewarding now. It's very liberating. Most liberating thing I've ever experienced. J.P. Cormier there, talking about his life since 2009 and discussing the process which led to his album Somewhere in the Back of My Heart. He mentioned the song Noise, which features his current touring partner, Emily Dingwall, on backing vocals. We're going to hear that track right now and listen, if you would, to J.P.'s beautiful fingerstyle guitar. Here we go again with J.P. Cormier on The Kitchen Party Kaylee. I can't hear the songbirds singing Or the church bells ringing Without your sweet voice All the world is noise I can see the children playing I can't hear what they're saying Without your sweet voice All the world is noise 
And if I ever hear your voice again Maybe on some clear and holy morning I will close my eyes and take it in But until then, until then I will watch the lovers dancing But I won't hear them laughing Without your sweet voice All the world is yours And if I ever hear your voice again Maybe on some clear and holy morning I will close my eyes and take it in Until then, until then I won't hear the rain start its drumming The streets could all be flooding Without your sweet That was a lovely song entitled Noise, written by Mike Logan and performed by J.P. Cormier, with Emily Dingwall on backing vocals. In addition to the great fingerstyle guitar work, J.P. also played the flute on that track, an instrument I did not know he played. The piano was supplied by Jamie Folds, the producer of the album and someone with whom J.P. has worked often and productively in the past. We're in the middle of our Celtic Colors Festival preview, and I want to talk a bit now about the festival itself. It runs this year from Friday, October 12th to Saturday the 19th. It's a scattered site festival in that every night there are four to six shows happening simultaneously at locations all over the island. As you might imagine, this makes for some difficult decisions about what to attend, but let's face it, that's a nice problem to have. After each evening's performances have concluded, there's Festival Club at the Gaelic College in St. Anne's. Festival Club features artists playing in a more informal setting, which often results in some dazzling impromptu collaborations, which might sometimes only occur just the once. It's not an open session, but rather a chance to wind down what has already been an incredible evening of music. The performances are by invitation only, and nothing is released in advance, so you never know what you're going to get. You only know that, whatever it is, it's likely to be amazing. In short, if there's any way you can still make Celtic Colors this year, I urge you to do so. If not, then start thinking about next year. It's always in mid-October, just as the leaves are changing and the countryside comes alive. And the timing is centered around the Monday holiday, which Canadians know as Thanksgiving, and which we Americans know as Columbus Day. It runs from the Friday before Thanksgiving, or Columbus Day as the case may be, to the Saturday after. So make your plans now. I understand that all of this might make me sound like a promoter of Cape Breton tourism, but what can I say? I've been told that before, and I can live with it. 
One of the most noteworthy Celtic Colors events is the Guitar Summit, which is usually hosted by J.P. Cormier. Three years ago, Tim Eady made his first appearance at the summit, which caused a sensation. I didn't get to see that one, but I was there the following year when Tim was back, along with Scotland's Anna Massey and Brian Doyle and Scott McMillan from Nova Scotia, and of course J.P., and that was pretty incredible. Last year was J.P., Cape Breton guitar legend Dave McIsaac, Ray Legere, and John Doyle, so you can probably imagine what that was like. This year, it'll be J.P. and Tim again, along with Brian Doyle, Patrick Gillis, Maxime Cormier, and Cape Breton blues guitarist, yes, that's right, John Campbelljohn. Can't wait. Let's hear what J.P. Cormier had to say about Celtic Colors, and then we've got a goodie for you, here on the Kitchen Party Kaylee. What has Celtic Colors meant to you personally, and to you as a musician? Personally, it was started by two of my closest friends in this business, Joella Foles and Max McDonald, who incidentally were my very first managers when I moved to Cape Breton. And they started my career. Max and Joella were the ones who oversaw the recording of Another Morning. And without that album, I wouldn't be doing this. Which incidentally, that record in Canada's platinum, or nearly platinum now. And that festival was born at my kitchen table one evening with me and Max McDonald and Paris and Pandora from the Tondra Festival in Denmark. And the conversations were had in the winter, I think it was February, and that very October they had the first one, and it's been going ever since. Artistically, for me, it's an invaluable well of outside music that you would never get to see otherwise. They bring artists into Cape Breton that the rest of us marvel over. And I've met so many people, had so many great artists through that festival, and a good example would be Tim Heaney, who has become one of my closest friends and closest musical friends. And, of course, you have an album out with Tim Eady. Yes, we just finished it a few weeks ago, and it's over in England with him now, and we're just getting the liner notes prepared, and it's going to be released. And we're actually hoping to release it at the Guitar Summit in October this year. So we're pretty excited about that. Can you give us a little preview on what that album is going to entail? Well, <laughs> it's hard to describe this record. The best way I can say it is, it's probably the most incredible recording that I've ever had a part of in my life. It's... Ten cuts. We couldn't fit all twelve on it. It was too long. But it's ten cuts of me and him in front of two microphones in the room, facing each other, playing off the cuff with no preparation at all. We don't even know which tunes are coming next or who's doing what next. We just okay, I'll play the guitar, you play the guitar on this one. And we did it. And then oh okay, I'll play the banjo, you play the accordion on this one. Okay, we did it. And the album's called Once. They're all one takes. There's no overdubs and there's no repairs or edits at all. From what I understand, this was all done over a three-day period in your studio after Celtic Colors a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was about three days the first time, and then he came over a few weeks ago and spent one evening with me, and we cut the last two. It's an album that, like, listening to it from top to bottom is, for me, it's like I could only compare it to taking acid. <laughs> it's the most mind-bending thing that I've ever heard. It's so intense, I don't even remember doing what's on those recordings. He's such an incredible musician, and it's not just his musicianship, it's him. It's his spirit he has. I just went into a trance with it, and I think we both just blacked out and played. And it was just like you're getting abducted by aliens or something. And when you hear it, when you listen to the record, you hear that. You hear that we're not in the world at that point on any of the cuts. It's just like we've gone somewhere else, goodbye. We're going over here now for red licorice. You want to come with us? <laughs> like, the whole album, it's 77 minutes long, and it's just ridiculous. 
I've never seen anything like it. I'm really keen for people to hear it. I don't know. I'm not sure what people will think. Instrumental albums are sometimes hard on the head for people. Somehow I feel like this one won't be that hard for people to listen to if they're not really into instrumental music even that much. They might enjoy it anyway because it's so crazy. It's just it's the only way to describe it. It's just you listen to it. It's two guys. You can almost picture a sit there smiling and sweating. Yeah, it's hard to describe. I remember two years ago at Celtic Colors seeing the two of you play in the Guitar Summit and just being absolutely blown away by that. And in fact, the two of you will be at the Guitar Summit again this time out, won't you? Oh, yes, definitely. And we also made an appearance at Stan Texas in July. And again, it was just me and him doing our thing. We zoned out again during a workshop. That's the scary thing. It was during a workshop. <laughs> We're doing a guitar workshop, and I looked at Tim and said, well, let's play a blast of tunes. And it turned into this 10-minute free medley of everything under the thugs. That was part three of my chat with J.P. Cormier. I'm sure you could hear the sense of glee and wonder as he discussed the recording of his soon-to-be-released album with Tim Eady, entitled Once. The album is still being readied for release, and will hopefully be available at Celtic Colors, but I've got a cookie for you now. J.P. was kind enough to send me an advanced track, and I'm pretty sure we're going to be the first to offer anything from this CD on the radio. I've been keeping it to myself for the last few weeks, just waiting for the right time to share it with you, and that time is now. This track is just simply called G Jigs, and I remind you that this selection, along with everything else on the record, was recorded in one take. I'm still amazed by that. JP is on his customary steel string acoustic guitar, and Tim is on his customary nylon string one. JP plays the melody, while Tim plays some incredible rhythm, and occasionally even a harmony line. Listen in particular to Tim's rhythm accents, and the way he plays in front of or behind the beat for effect. It's really almost startling. We're going to hear a lot more from this wonderful musician on our show next week, but for now, let's hear this track, G Jigs, from the upcoming album Once, featuring the amazing Tim Eady and the incomparable J.P. Cormier. One, two, three, four.
That was J.P. Cormier and Tim Eady from their upcoming album, Once. How about that? I have no idea what the tunes were, as this is from an MP3 that J.P. was good enough to send me. As soon as the album hits the street, we'll have it for you. Let's put a pretty bow on my conversation with J.P., in which he discusses his newest venture. Let's talk about Cormier recording. Somebody can come in and pay a flat fee. They walk in with whatever they've got. You put them up. You feed them, you give them whatever level of assistance they want in the studio. You help out with the arranging, with the songwriting if necessary, and they walk out with a fully mastered product ready to take to the duplicator. That is correct, yeah. It was a brainstorm for me and my partner, Kathy. Well, we started to look at how many people I'd produced in my studio when my studio wasn't open to the public. It was over 40 artists that I'd produced. I've been really lucky. I have some friends that have done really well. And we looked at this and said, well, why don't we advertise this? Because you're doing something that nobody else does. You're offering a one-man, one-stop recording experience where they can walk away with the album done in a week and only spending $10,000 instead of doing something over months and spending dollars $30,000, $40,000. Like, I own my own studio, and that last album of mine still cost me twelve grand. I could have an album done in them in six days. They're out the door. Bye. Finished. They're ready to go. And afterwards, we're providing any kind of assistance that you need in the industry. We give it. And we're even giving the artists chances to open for me at places and getting them gigs where I work. And we just said, well, let's do it. Kathy designed the site and all of the media. She's the media administration officer for the company. She's providing all the videography for the artists, photography, and I'm doing all the production, arrangement, playing. So between the two of us, we sort of have a little capsule empire where a person just comes in and we take care of everything and they walk in with a record. And it's just worked fabulous. I have actually four or five projects happening right now, all simultaneously. Information about the studio and all of your recordings, including your most recent Somewhere in the Back of My Heart, and your tour dates are available at jp-cormier.com. Yes, and also there's a studio website, which is very nice. It's just Cormier Recordings, all one word, cormierrecordings.com. And we can be reached there or through my fan site on Facebook. Well, we thank you very much for being so generous with your time, and we appreciate you being our guest here on The Kitchen Party, Kaylee. Well, I appreciate you supporting me and supporting all of us. Without guys like you, there's no hope for artists like us. We need you, and we really appreciate what you're doing. You are listening to The Kitchen Party Kaylee on WITT 91.9 FM. We're getting near the end of our show. I hope you've enjoyed our J.P. Cormier focus, and I look forward to having you join us again next week. We've got time for one more selection, but first I'd like to mention that our show today was underwritten by the Clotta in Plainfield, open every day and featuring live music most nights with no cover. Reach us by email at kitchenpartykaylee at gmail.com, Kaylee is C-E-I-L-I-D-H, by Twitter at at KPC underscore radio, or through our Facebook page. You can find podcasts and playlists at iTunes. For our final track today, we're going back to Somewhere in the Back of My Heart, and here's some great Cape Breton-style fiddling from J.P. Cormier on a track entitled The Bird. I'm your host, Dave Baghdad, and I thank you for listening. We'll see you here again on Friday at 8 p.m., right after the Hog Eye Navi Show. Slan Ogut.
You've been listening to The Kitchen Party Kaylee on WITT 91.9 FM. This program was made possible by support from the Clotta Irish Pub in Plainfield. Join us again next Friday at 8 p.m. The Kitchen Party Kaylee was written, produced, and hosted by Dave Baghdad and was recorded at EMAS Studios. The Kitchen Party Kaylee is a fortnight production. Coming up next on WITT at 9 p.m. is A Lack of Color.